turn together to the book of Genesis, specifically chapter 32. As we continue together in our story of the patriarch Jacob, Jacob is now on his way back to the promised land. You recall last week, Jacob departed from Laban and had a confrontation with him. And now he is back on his journey, but not without difficulties. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Genesis chapter 32, beginning at verse 1 through verse 21. Jacob went on his way. And the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant, Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. From the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milking camels and their calves, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? 
Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed their droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word. That you would teach us to trust you in spite of all circumstances. That you would teach us that you ordain circumstances for our good, specifically for the good of our relationship with you. Lord, we ask this morning that you would show us that you are indeed our God. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. It seems that it is something that every parent experiences. As the children are prepared for bedtime, Perhaps a last snack, teeth are brushed, hair brushed, pajamas put on, covers snuggled up tightly underneath the neck. And with warm wishes and expressions of love, the light goes out and you leave the room. And no sooner has that happened, but there is a cry. Perhaps it's a whimpering. Perhaps it's a screaming. But you go back in and you say, what's wrong? And the answer is, well, I'm frightened. I'm scared. I don't want to be in here alone. So what is a parent to do? Well, I think perhaps many of us, perhaps the most logical among us, will go about reasoning with the child. There's nothing to be afraid of. You know, there's an alarm system in the house. Look, I'll turn on the light. Let's look underneath the bed. There's nothing underneath the bed. Let's go to the closet. You see, nothing here but clothes. Now get into bed. There's nothing to be worried about. You shut off the light and you walk out. And to your surprise and dismay, the same cries reoccur. And you think to yourself, I've explained this very well. There's no reason for them to be afraid. And you come in. And if parents have experienced this more than once, they know that the solution often is not in persuasive reasoning. The solution is just something as simple as, well, I'll shut off the light and sit here at the edge of the bed till you fall asleep. Or I'll rock in that chair. I'll be right here. You can open your eyes and you'll know I'm here. And you'll know that even in the midst of your fear that you're safe. I think that's an encapsulating picture of the Christian life. You see, oftentimes, we think that what the Christian life is to be is to be never afraid. 
that we are intellectually to know what the Scripture says, and that should affect our emotions and our being so that we should never experience fear. But I think the Bible tells us a different kind of story. The Bible tells us that part of being a believer in the Lord is to be afraid from time to time. I dare say it is okay to be afraid. We'll see so and see why in just a moment. But you see, the Christian life is not about not having fear. The Christian life is about trusting the Lord in the midst of our fear. And that's what Jacob is doing right now. And so this morning, I would like us to see how Jacob is affected by fear and in that how we can learn the lessons of how to deal with our own fears. First, we will see a life that is confronted by fear. And then secondly, we will see Jacob seeking God in fear. And then third, we will see God's challenge to us in fear. A life that is confronted by fear. Our call to seek God in fear. And God's challenge to us in fear. Well, let's begin then by looking at Jacob's life. It is a life that is confronted by fear. You know, there is a cliche. It says, out of the frying pan and into the fire. And it's a cliche that reminds us that when we are in the midst of a bad and a horrible situation, sometimes it gets worse. It's bad to be on the hot skillet, but worse to be amongst the flames. And so that's actually what's happening to Jacob here. Remember, he has just escaped Laban. He's gone running for his life with his family. He's afraid that Laban is going to do him harm. And now... He cannot go back. You remember the covenant that was made last chapter? Where they set up the heap of witness and Laban said, This is a witness for me. I won't go beyond it. You won't come back. Jacob has nowhere to go but forward. God has called him home, but he has also worked the circumstances such that Jacob can only travel in one direction. And now he is about to face Esau. He's about to confront his past. And if Jacob was nervous about Laban, his knees are knocking at the thought of facing Esau. At least with Laban, he knew what to expect. He had lived with the man for 20 years. He hasn't even talked to Esau in two decades. What is he like? How many children does he have? How did he treat our parents? How long can he hold a grudge? You see, Jacob has every reason to be afraid. But he is also, by God's providence, a changed man. You see, Jacob previously had fled from conflict with Esau. There was a conflict over the blessing, and mom gave him the advice to get out of town, and Jacob was more than happy to take it. Put a few miles between him and his angry big brother. Let me get out of here. And so he escaped, as it were. He fled. There's a sense in which Jacob did that with Laban as well. Things were going to get hot, and he flees and escapes from Laban. But now, 
we see in a very subtle thing that Jacob has been changed by God. You see, Jacob is headed back to the promised land. And he's going to send messengers to his brother. But you have to, in your mind's eye, visualize a map of the area. It will help you. If Jacob is over here, off in the east, and he is traveling, he has to go here to reach the promised land. And Esau is down here. He could very easily just skirt around Esau's lands. Hope Esau doesn't know he's back in town. Maybe he figures once he gets back in town, mom and dad will be there and they'll provide some some cover, some screening for him. But Jacob does something different here. He actually takes the initiative and begins now to confront Esau. To try to set things right. He is deliberately traveling to Seir. Let me ask you a question. How do you deal with conflict? Do you deal with conflict by avoiding it? There's a wonderful series of materials called Peacemakers. And Peacemakers describes two flaws in the way we deal with conflict. The first is to be a peace breaker. That is to attack others, to go after them, to be violent, to be aggressive. And we can look at that and we can say, yes, that's, that's not biblical. We shouldn't treat people harshly. We shouldn't attack others. But you see, there's another equally bad error, and that is to be a peace faker. To pretend everything's all right when it's not. To avoid conflict to avoid setting things right, to avoid repairing relationships because we're afraid. You see, what the Bible teaches us is that our relationships are important and they are worth the risk, even worth the risk of fear. Jacob has learned this lesson. And so he heads back to try and make peace with his brother Esau. Just... Also, as an interesting aside, one of the commentators on this passage makes an interesting point. He says, you know, Jacob is a wonderful illustration of our Lord Jesus Christ's mandate to what to do when you have something against your brother. Do you remember what it is? Before you go to sacrifice, before you go to set yourself up, before you seek God, you go and be reconciled with your brother. That's what Jacob is doing. Before he establishes himself as the heir of the promise, he goes to make things right with his brother. And it's a fearful prospect. But God is with him and meets him in the midst of this fear. And so we see at the beginning of this chapter that Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And this might seem like just any other event. But in actuality, it is a parallel to when Jacob was on his way to the land of Laban. You remember in Genesis 28, Jacob was on his way and he saw the angels of God ascending and descending upon the ladder. Perhaps you will not be surprised when I tell you that that phrase, the angels of God, is only used in Genesis 28 and Genesis 32. This exact phrase in Hebrew. It's like bookends. 
God is telling Jacob he's with him in the beginning and he's with him in the end. He is always with him. This is a reminder to you and to me that even events that seem ordinary are not ordinary to God. The daily struggles that you have, the daily fears that grip you are a concern of God. It's not just a crisis that God comes to. It's the everyday. It's the worry of, will my knee ever feel better? Will that crick in my back or my shoulder ever go away? How will the doctor's report come out? Will my kid ever graduate from college? Will I ever get to drive? You see, all of these everyday worries and concerns and fears are part and parcel of the plan and attention of God. He looks upon all of these things in our lives. And you see, even this grand instance, this grand incident of Jacob the patriarch is really just dealt with very quickly. The angels of God met him. In Hebrew, it's only four words. It's almost something we might pass over if we were reading quickly through our Bibles. It is a brief event, but it is a reminder that God is with Jacob. I want to also challenge you with one other thing about Jacob's meeting with God here. Do you notice when God meets with Jacob? When he assures him? It is when Jacob is already in the path of obedience. God said to him, go and return. And Jacob did Something remarkable to my ears in the modern age. He heard God and he obeyed and he acted. And God blesses that, not with trinkets or gifts, but with an expression of his presence and of encouragement that he is on the right way. It's a brief instance, but it is also a very powerful instance. We see that here in the name that Jacob gives to the place. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanim. Now, Mahanim basically means two camps, two hosts, to use an old term that has come back in in vogue via Tolkien. Two armies. And we might think immediately, well, of course, it's two camps because later on he's going to split up his groups. I don't think that's what's happening here. Jacob hasn't decided to divide up his group yet. What is happening here is that it is a brief expression of God's presence, but it is a powerful expression. This is more akin to when Elijah saw the army of God before him protecting him than it is one or two little small cherubs that look like precious moments dolls with wings. These are the armies of the Lord the soldiers of the living God, and they are here to tell Jacob that no earthly force can harm him. Jacob sees them and he says, God is powerful. Is God powerful in your life? Do you trust the Lord not just to be there, but to be a source of power and protection for you daily? to look after you, to guide you, to protect you. Because that is the God that we serve. We do not serve a hesitating, unknowing, 
impotent God. No, we serve a God who is mighty and powerful. Jacob has reason to be afraid. There is real danger in his midst. And we see this by the way he interacts with with Esau. You see, he sends the messengers, and he has a very odd message, doesn't he? He says, I want you to say to my Lord Esau, your servant Jacob is returning. Now, we might look at this and first think this is some kind of politeness. The way many of us teach our children to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. I don't think that's what it is. There is a sense in which Jacob is so afraid that he is reversing, undoing what has been done in the blessing and in the inheritance. You see, what he should be doing, rationally speaking, is sending messengers to go to Esau and say, Say to my servant Esau, His Lord Jacob returneth with camels and donkeys and sheep and wealth and power, and the living God. But you see, he doesn't. I think it's partly because he's afraid, but I think it's also partly because he is now struck with a guilty conscience about how he became the Lord Jacob. We'll see more about that in a minute. And so he begins backpedaling, and he begins going out of his way to tell Esau that there's no threat. You see, he tells Esau all that he has, and I think what he's doing here when he says, you know, I have sheep and I have donkeys and I have goats and I have camels, what he's really saying is, I don't need anything of yours. I'm not going to ask for a single thing. You don't need to worry about me. I'm absolutely no threat. He's trying to soothe and calm Esau. So what's the response You can imagine Jacob waiting on pins and needles. Have you ever had that experience? Waiting for a grade to come back? Sitting in your room when dad says, I'll be up in 15 minutes and we'll discuss this. And you know that discussion is very one-sided. He's probably pacing. Playing in his mind what Esau would say. And the messenger comes back and he says, good news. I've met with Esau and I told him everything exactly That you told me. And Jacob says, well, what did he say? What did he say? Was he angry? Did he yell? Did he cry? Did he talk to the... Did he pace? What did he say? What did he say? Out with it, man. Out with it. And the messenger says, well, he actually didn't say anything. But he is coming. Oh, okay. With 400 armed men. Oh. Not what I expected. And you can just imagine Jacob's heart just sinking. He's probably expecting the worst. Remember, the very last words he heard his brother say were, I can't wait till my father's dead so I can kill my brother. Doesn't exactly leave one with a lot of hope. And so... Jacob's now, his anxiety begins to turn to terror. He's probably white as a sheet. He's scrambling around like a chicken with his head cut off. Doesn't know what to do. Should we arm the people? No, should we divide? No, maybe we should go back. Can't go back. What should I do? And he's running through all of these options in his mind. And the one thing that he comes to in his conclusion, he goes back 
to old Jacob for a moment. And he says, I've got to do something. Don't just sit there. Do something. Aha. I will divide the camp. We'll go in two forms. So this way, all he can do is kill half my kids and my wives and my stuff. Think about that. Think about the implicit resignation in his decision that what he has decided to do was to only lose half of his family. We see in the next chapter which half he's willing to lose. But it's interesting here that he expects bad things to happen. And this is right upon the heels of God's promise to him. But before we judge Jacob too harshly, I think we need to ask ourselves the same question. Do you expect bad things to happen? Have you predicted 10 of the last two recessions? Are you sure you'll never get into the school you need to get into? Are you sure the job will be lost? Are you sure the money will be short at the end of the month? Are you always positive that bad things are going to happen? And maybe in the back of your mind it's because you think, well, I deserve it. Even when you have the promise of God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's a reason to be afraid. And what Jacob then does is he reverts back to proper form. It's as if he checks himself and he says, well, I've divided the camp, but you know what I really need to do is stop planning and get on my knees. Jacob is an interesting man. He tells us that in the Christian life, we need to plan, but we also need to pray. And we need to pray, but we also need to plan. We need to work these two things together as God works in our life. And so what he does then is he gives to us what really is a model prayer. He says, God, I'm afraid. And we might immediately think this is the wrong way to pray. If we were in a class on prayer and Jacob began to pray, we would stop him and say, no, 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 Jacob. Don't admit you're afraid. You shouldn't be afraid. It's a sin to be afraid. God, name and claim victory over Esau. But you see here, it's okay to be afraid because we are all afraid at times. You know, there's a story that is spoken among soldiers that those who are courageous in battle are not those without fear. They are those who act in spite of their fear. That's what it is like to be a Christian. It is overcoming our fear through faith in the Lord, through trust in Him. Because you see, fear can drive us to the Lord. It is what we do with our fear that marks us as Christians. It is not that we are unemotional. It is not that we are somehow stoic about everything going on. It is what we do when we realize that we are afraid and only God can help us. And what Jacob does is he goes to God and he gives this marvelous five-point prayer. He begins first by addressing God with adoration. He says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return. He tells God who he is. 
He's the God of Abraham. He is the God of promise. He is the God of Isaac, the one who delivered Isaac out of difficulty. He is the God of Jacob, the one who speaks and commands and must be obeyed. This is who God is. When you pray, do you think about who the one is that you are praying to? Does that begin your prayers? Not because God needs to be reminded. God doesn't forget who he is. But we can. And so before we even ask, it is good to remind ourselves, who are we addressing? He is the promiser. He is the deliverer. He is the sovereign king. And then he goes on in verse 9. Secondly, to plead the promise of God back to him. He says, Lord, you said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. In a very nice and Bible-ish kind of way, Jacob says to God, this is what you wanted, God. This is what you told me. I'm obeying you. I can't see the end of this. Quite frankly, it maybe seems to me like not so good of an idea. But I know that I am to trust you and not my thoughts of what's a good idea. I'm trusting your promise, leaning on your arms. And again, this is something that should fill our prayers. When God has told us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, do you believe that and do you plead that promise? When God says that he is faithful forever, And wants to bless us and has prepared a place in his kingdom for us. Do you believe him and act upon it? When God declares that what God has joined together, let no man separate. Do you plead that in your prayers for your spouse? Knowing that no matter what the circumstances are, God's promise is what trumps everything. And then the third thing that Jacob does is what we would expect immediately following the great promise of God. He looks at God and he says, your promises are great and I trust you, but look it. I'm a mess. I don't deserve anything. He confesses his sins before his Lord. He says, I'm not worthy of anything you've done for me. You could have given me scraps off the table and I wouldn't be worthy of it. But you have blessed me. I went over this river with a stick and now look at me. And it's all you're doing. And we might imagine he might rehearse in his mind all of the ways that God has blessed him. And so the question then comes to you. God has shown you so much blessing. We live in a land where we have artificially conditioned air. And we're comfortable because of it. We have entire giant warehouses full of food that we can go and get anytime we want. If we are sick or hurt, people rush to our aid in speeding vehicles to take us to places where skilled physicians with great technology do everything that is possible on the face of this earth to help us. How 
how can we not know that we are blessed? We are not worthy of the blessings that have been given to us. What makes us better than our brothers and sisters in Christ today in Sudan or Borneo or South America or quite frankly six centuries ago? It is the grace of God. And when we go to the Lord and ask for His blessing and ask for His help, we must remember that we are not worthy, that it is He who is worthy. It is His plan. It is His decree. It is His good will that is being done. What have you confessed recently to your God? I don't mean vague little things like, Lord, I know I could do better. Lord, I know I could read my Bible more. Lord, you know, sometimes I get a bit angry. What have you dug down deep into your soul and confessed to God? That you might feel the liberating, freeing forgiveness that comes in Christ Jesus. Jacob then undertakes a fourth aspect to this prayer. The actual petition. It's in verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children. Now, I want you to notice something. You all should know this. You're at Christ's church. Notice how particular his prayer is. It's not, Lord, I need your help. Keep me from having bad things happen to me. He says, no, Lord, there's this guy out there and his name is Esau and he's on his way with an army and he's going to attack me and he's going to attack my wives and he's going to attack my kids and I'm scared to death, Lord. You need to protect me from that particular threat. There's an urgency in the prayer. There's a reality to this prayer. He is confessing in his prayer that he is afraid. That is the power of prayer. It is liberating. We cast off our fear because we cast it on God. We don't hide it or stuff it in. What we say is, God, we don't know how we're going to make it. I don't see any way out here, Lord. It's the end. It's curtains. All I can do is go to you. That kind of fervent Urgent prayer is what we need more in the church today. We need it in our lives, we need it in our nation, and we need it in the kingdom of God. It is how God moves powerfully amongst His people. He calls upon us in the New Testament to cast all our cares on Him. Not because He has broad shoulders. Not because He is the King of the universe. Not because He has all of the answers, but because He cares for you. That is why we can cast our cares. We stand upon those promises of God. In spite of all that we see, we see the last thing in this prayer, the fifth element of this prayer. He says, You have said, God, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob pleads back to God the promise of God and he says, You've already given me the answer. Now do it, God. Not what I want. It's not what I think. It's what you said. And you'll notice what he does here. He couples a personal promise with a covenantal promise. He says, you told me that you would do me good. And he also says, 
You said you would make me to number like the sand of the seashore. Well, God really didn't say that to Jacob. He said it to Abraham. And the promise was reiterated to Isaac. And then passed down to Jacob. You see, Jacob is saying, the promise that you made, covenantally, to my family, I am claiming. That is something that you can do today. What? I could be as numerous as the sand on the seashore? I could claim Abraham's promises? Do I get a piece of real estate out in Palestine? No. But you have covenantal promises to your covenantal head. And his name is Jesus Christ. Every promise of God is yea and amen in Jesus. Those are your promises to claim, yours to plead, yours to offer up in prayer. Every promise that God has given is yours in Jesus. The third and final thing that we see this morning. We've looked at Jacob living a life of fear and he has sought God in the midst of that fear and now we see God's challenge to him in the midst of this fear. I dare say it, the reason why God has allowed Jacob to be gripped by this fear. Because you see, Jacob has to confront it. He has to go forward. He has to go forward imperfectly knowing that he doesn't have all the answers and all he can do is trust God. And oftentimes that is what we are called to do. To simply follow the Lord. But he also has to confront himself. Have you asked yourself why Jacob is so afraid? Well, there's the obvious danger there. There's Esau and a small cavalry force coming after him. But Jacob is the one who is the Lord. Jacob is the one who has God's promises. Why doesn't Jacob simply shake off that fear? And I think the answer is that the fear here is of Jacob's own making. You see, the difference between Jacob hearing that Laban is on the way and stiffening up his back and saying, let me tell you about how you changed my wages, and Jacob hearing Esau's on the way, and being paralyzed by fear, is not the number of the men. Laban had a small armed force as well. The difference is that on some level, Jacob knows if bad things happen here, he deserves it. His conscience is guilty. He knows he's done Esau wrong. And so what he does is, he settles in his own mind, to meet with the Lord and to deal with this situation in the power of the Lord. Now, there is some sense in which he sends these groups, these flocks, in the hope that the more nice things that come by, the happier Esau will get. But you and I both know just from how much we've seen of Esau, Esau is not Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky. It's probably just as likely to annoy him as it is to make him all happy and giddy. So why is Jacob doing this then? And why is Jacob hanging back? Why does it say in the last verse, so he, so the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Why did he do that? I put it to you because God is at work in his life. 
And what Jacob has decided here is to get everyone possible to safety. To get everyone safe and have all of Esau's wrath fall on himself if it has to. He will be a man. And he will speak to Esau. He'll still be afraid. But he will speak to him and deal with the situation just as God has commanded him. You know, God commands you today to overcome your fears. It may be the fear that your marriage will not work out. It may be the fear of letting go of your children. It may be the fear of talking to a neighbor about this person, Jesus. And what you need to remember is not to wait for a time when you're never afraid. Because I dare say that's not going to come. What we need to do is in the middle of our fear, trust the Lord to carry us through, to protect us, and to bless us in the midst of that fear. That's how the Lord works in the lives of His children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask You this morning, O Lord, be with us in the middle of our fear. Protect us. Encourage us. Remind us of Your great promises that we might follow after You. Obey Your commands and unhesitatingly seek Your glory. This we ask in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.